Mom, I have a question for you today. And my question is, uh-huh. what is the point to you? What is the point of assessing student work? What is it that you're trying to get when you sit and you decide to give an assessment of some kind? What, what are the end results that you're looking for? Well, the end results that I'm looking for is I want to make sure that they're growing and that I find any kind of gaps in their learning. So I'm assessing to see that there are no gaps or can I also, or can I extend their learning? Sometimes I had a student last year, it didn't matter how I assessed him, he was always at the top of it, you know, a He was just always at the top, no matter if it was a regular test or even in his writing. And I've already mentioned some of his work to you. He just kind of thought at a level above everybody else. So I was just always challenged. I finally had to do some pull in some high school test in order for him to at least make a 98. (laughs) So he was just like, so for me, it was just trying to figure out how I can extend his learning. Uh, Some of the others, it's more or less. I'm trying to figure out what I can do to help them. So where are their needs? Where are their gaps? Uh, and then I go in and start searching for how, you know, how can I help uh, that student? But um, but I think when I first started, it was just more of, a, I just need a test grade to, uh, so, I, you know, when I first started, it was, it's all about, sometimes it is, you know, you run out of time and it's like, I just need a test grade so I can uh, meet the qualification or the criteria of the, of the district. So, um, so, but sometimes, but true assessment uh, can come in different forms and different ways. And so just sometimes me monitoring and writing anecdotal notes about students, you know, just remember to do this, make sure you call the student up and ask them about this, those types of things. I spent all day, um, I guess it was uh, Thursday, uh, pulling students up and talking to them about the last assessment. So all the students were writing, and while they were writing, I would pull them up one at a time. It took me two days to get that all done, but I would. they were either writing or reading, depending on what they were working on. And I would pull them up and talk to them. This is where you were. This is where you are now. Uh, this is how I'm seeing growth. And so I like to talk to the students so that they can be a part of the assessment. And I think that is a perfect way to lead into today's discussion about putting craft and draft together, rolling through everything, combining it, getting that assessment piece in, how we think about assessment. I'm sure we'll talk about assessment a lot um, just just throughout the life of the podcast. But today is just going to be kind of how it melds with the particular craft and draft system, at least how we approach it. Um, so I'm super excited for everyone to hear this talk. I'm super excited to have this talk. I actually really love talking assessment, but we'll get to that in a second after I introduce us. This is the Craft and Draft Podcast with Pam Ocho and Jacob Chastain. We podcast every single week about writing workshop, reading workshop, and everything in between. We talk about our craft and draft system, but you don't have to be an investor in that just yet because we're just sharing our experiences in real classrooms. We are teachers during COVID era. We have online classes. We have in-person classes. We're at public schools, so we're doing the job that we're talking about. So we're not just people sitting on a mountain saying we have the answers. We're people saying... I hope these are the answers because we're talking about them today. But in any case, welcome to Craft and Draft. All right. I am, so, I am ahead, still Jack. hoping I have the answers, <laughs> but I may not. <laughs> well, and you know what's funny is I, 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 I don't know. I, I didn't really think about assessment that much as a young teacher. And then um, I started thinking about it later and later. And I, I just, what made me start thinking about assessment and what that really meant was just all of the, the bad conversations that you have about assessment on campuses. It's just like, I mean, I don't know if anyone can listen, can relate to this, but like you do a test and then you have to go through a form with like 4,000 questions on it. And then you answer all these questions about all of these things. But because, because it's so systemized, it was, we never really had these great like we never really dove into the the issues with maybe a question or the issues with our teaching and stuff. It became, you know, if it wasn't a comparison game, it was more of a a game of just trying to get through it. And I would, I just found myself going, okay, so if we're gonna do this, we need to have better conversations about it. And I I don't know, I just kind of 
became obsessed with finding ways. And I feel like you and I have similar approaches to this, obviously, because of Craft and Draft, but also because I think we're just, we hate wasting time. Like, I mean, and you know, like you were an academic coach for a lot longer than I was. And you're, I mean, how often did you feel like test, like analysis with teachers really was productive in all honesty? Well, in honesty, I, I, I felt like I had created a system. Well, I didn't really create it myself, but I, you know, like the DeFore system where they asked the four questions And those four questions, of course, you know, what if the, what, what were you supposed to teach? Right. What were the standards? What did you have to teach? What happens if the student didn't get it? What happens if the student did get it? And what are you going to do in the future? And I think those four questions um, were really the heart of that. But what, what has happened? And, and when we just talked about those four things, and that's really all you talked about, and it was a conversation. I felt like that was a lot better. Yeah, uh, and that was better. when, the, yeah, and that's when it all started. And I had this little, um, I guess, anchor chart that we would put up, you know, or we could do it computerized. But I mean, but back then it was more of an anchor chart, and where we would just put up the poster paper, everybody would talk, and we'd have a conversation, everybody write about it, and then all of a sudden, um. They wanted, like you're talking about, this big, huge, long form. I guess somebody needed a job to do that. I don't really know. But this long form. And then it was like, first of all, it just seems like the more technology can do with data, the more questions we have to answer using that data. And not all of it, I don't think, is necessary. I think sometimes we spend our wheels trying to answer a data question when we really already have the data. We just need to figure out what we're going to do with it. But we're busy, you know, typing in, um, I guess, percentages and numbers and all of that. I mean, you hardly even have time to put in a trend chart. I mean, to me, if you we're just looking at numbers, but if they're not connected to the assessment before that and you don't see a growth line, then really what good is an individual number going to do for you? And I I just feel like sometimes we spin our wheels coming up with the data that nobody ever looks at again. And so that's what happened. But when it, when you keep it simple, it makes, I think it makes it a lot easier and I think you get more done. Yeah. And I think, you know, I, and for me, and I didn't realize I was kind of approaching cause I, I feel like the way I think about assessment these days is highly influenced by my master's uh, because I took a really great assessment class and it just talks about the different reasons to do assessments and stuff like that. And it really broke it down in a way that I was able to almost separate like there's assessment that I do kind of for the workshop and for the readers and writers in my room. And then there's assessment I do for like the necessary stuff that we have to do for school. It doesn't mean that necessary stuff is bad necessarily. It's just the the necessary – what usually happens – And where I think a lot of teachers come to hate assessing is we only do assessment that is necessary from the school. So multiple choice, your typical multiple choice questions um, that are representative of your state test that you're, you know, quote unquote, preparing kids for by the end of the year. Um, And because the conversation around that is so bad in general, the conversation can never – you're never going to go to a group of teachers and go, hey, now let's do these types of assessments for the kind of the workshop side and talk about it that way because they already hate assessment in general. So it's like they have this bad taste in their mouth. They're like, like, no, no more. We're going to do this test and then we're just going to move on. And I think the worst thing about assessment is is the bad – because it – The worst thing is is that it's so negatively perceived when really it should be seen as a tool to inform your teaching. But that's a really hard shift to occur if you're not already on a team that thinks of it like that. But in my experience, I don't think most teams are. No, I don't think so. I think – well, first of all, before all this data came up, I – we I didn't really look at data that much when I was younger. It was just more of the it was just more of the grades, you know, whatever those grades showed. Right. And then the the more I learned about grading, the more I realized that that was just an arbitrary number and it was whatever I put down. So did it really mean anything? No, it didn't mean anything. So 
you have to find data that's going to mean something. And I find uh, that the anecdotal data for me, when I'm watching, when I'm doing that kid watching, I'm talking to the kids, I'm looking at their writing. When I see that volume of work that they've created, I find that to be more useful in the classroom for me. Because when I can take a student and I can say, tell me what you see. And then they can tell me back or, you know, give me the feedback upon themselves in a self-reflection on, man, I've, I didn't know I was doing all that work. It was just fun. I mean, if you can do that, then I think you've done something. And But it is difficult to get teachers, and I think you're right, I think you hit these this high-stake testing is has so much pressure to it that I think we... I think we get lost behind the test. For sure. And uh, what's funny is I, I feel like there's a, there is a promised land. Like when we're talking about like, like this type of assessment, because there is a way to use this data. Like, am I, I under no way, I don't want anyone to misconstrue what I'm saying. Like I am not defending the state test. Like I think they're pretty subpar in terms of information. And I think it leads to a lot of bad teaching. And I think there's, you know, the, the whole system is kind of backwards to me, but this is the system we're playing in, right? Like there, uh, mm-hmm. Dr. Clark, our curriculum person at, uh, in our district, I think one of my favorite quotes by her is, you know, if I had it my way, you know, we would do it this way, but unfortunately these are the rules of the game we're playing in right now. Right. And I think, I, you know, that sounds defeatist, but I think it's just honest. Like if every school decided just to ignore this, every school would be in trouble of losing funding. Like (laughs) this isn't, and that's, there's a, the reason why I like this conversation is because there's a lot of people, uh, a lot of speakers, for instance, they get a lot of credit and a lot of attention and a lot of audience from, you know, saying the obvious standardized testing is bad. It leads to this. It leads to that. It does this. Like that's obvious. Like anyone in education for any period of time knows this, but it doesn't do anything to repeat those things. Like we could sit here all day dismantling the system of standardized testing. But at the end of the day, guess what teachers have to do right now, at least in this day. Standardized tests. <laughs> so, yeah, I just. Well, go ahead. Yeah. No, you just made me think of something, but, you know, I've taught a lot of different subjects, right? So I've taught tested subjects and I've taught non-tested subjects. And I've taught, one year I taught three different tested subjects at the same time, okay? I had three standardized tests. But I will tell you the year before that, I had a non-standardized test. There was, there was, it was geography and there was no test. And the, the biggest trouble I've ever gotten, if you will, with a political situation, that's all I'm going to say, was over the fact that I could not prove that my students were learning because there was no test that they understood. Of course, they were learning. And we were even entering them in geography contests, and we were winning. We were, as ninth graders, we were beating 11th and 12th graders, the ones that I had. They were learning. I even had parents that would say, well, I have a child in pre-EP and I have a child in your class on level and they're doing way more work in that, in that class and they're in the pre-EP. So, you know, so I had those kinds of things. I think my kids were learning. I could not prove that they were learning at a state level. Does that make sense? And so I, one thing, so that's when I learned to go ahead and embrace the test because the high stakes test is the the main evidence that everybody seems to understand that can prove that your students are learning at at a level that, like you said, the state funding, the federal funding, all of that is based on that. So you're right. At the end of the day, we got to have this high stakes test, or everything you do will be misinterpreted in the classroom. So that's and, my experience there. Well, and this is also I love that. Uh, <laughs> Uh, I love that bringing up these topics um, mm-hmm. as we kind of rework through this, the craft and draft and how we, why we did what we did. Cause we had these conversations, right? Like when we were right. really designing a system that could help teachers, it was this conversation. It was the whole, how do you show that kids are learning, but also play ball within the actual system. Okay. We're not trying right. to, we're not trying to preach some gospel that is unattainable in as, in as many public schools as possible. Um, and at the same time, do assessment that's equally as valuable to the workshop process and everything else like that. And that's it was that conversation that led us to 
doing a standards-based approach, which is the craft book, right? Using the standards right. in there, following whatever you're, you can change that craft book page to make it look like whatever your district wants your lessons to look like. Um, but using that left side and, and keeping your mini lessons small and using that left side for reflection and response and everything, and then cha- moving that into your draft book uh, for longer pieces and to work on actual writing and implementing the stuff that you're studying in the craft, like that it, in and of itself takes the standard approach to teaching, breaks it out into workshop, um, and gives us one form of assessment, right? You talked about kid watching and looking at uh, everything mm-hmm. kind of in front of you. And that craft and draft just partnership is if you if you can sit with a kid, open their craft book, go, oh, yeah, we did this lesson. Oh, I see the reflection over here. Super great. Guess what? So the first step is that mini lesson. Second step is, is there some type of learning happening on that left side? And then you go to your draft book and is there application whatever you're learning? It might not be the same day, but does it transfer over at some point? So there's already three points that you can trace breadcrumbs, if you will, to find right. out if kids are applying what they're learning. And then this next phase that we're talking about is going into stuff like publishing and uh, using your actual multiple choice test to kind of find this because not to backstep even more, but one of the frustrations that I remember voicing with you was, you know, we would have these conversations about a test. Like say, let's say you and I are both teaching seventh grade. We give a multiple choice, 10 question test, and when we're looking at it, we go, okay, so th- a lot of our kids missed question three. Why they missed question three? And then we both go, I don't know. Right? We shrug our shoulders. <laughs> I don't know. First of all, we had to shred the test, so we don't even know what the question looked like. I know that was a big issue. They were like, they were like, you got to get rid of the test immediately. And it's like, but we need to go. We, I thought we were using it for a tool. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and so though the I don't know was what. Uh, right. our goal is to ultimately kind of diminish because whether you, cause some campuses hardcore do tons of multiple choice testing and are very standardized. And we know that there's teachers listening to this that are in those situations. And then mm-hmm. there's situations that are kind of more like us to where, yeah, we have those things that we have to do, but even your campus and to my campus treat multiple choice tests entirely different. Right. And that's, that's just reality. So it's, it comes down to if you're forced to do it, if this is what your campus has decided, your district has decided, then we need to figure out how to make it as valuable as possible to you. Otherwise, you're literally wasting your time. And there's value in there. There's value in these multiple choice tests. You just kind of have to weed them out. Like when you're so to pitch it to you, when you okay. are where do your uh, let me ask you this where do you get the majority of your tests from like do you pull them from star test or do y'all do y'all fully write them oh i have to, over the years i've done both uh-huh. but right now um i think because my the the school i'm at they have a lot of uh i guess pressure on making sure that we perform that I really want those students to have practice with those types of questions. So we do both. So there are some tests that we actually write, and there are some tests that we actually borrow from release test questions. So we do the same. That's what I was asking because our, in general, our multiple choice tests, actually not even in general, pretty much 100% of the time we have the, the, the test that we give kids like at the end of a unit is almost always uh, taken from the release test that we get from state. Uh, now, sometimes because you know there's multiple passages on those things, we uh, the the we might have to write a question or two, um, mm-hmm. or or make sure that you know if we we tra- we track our standards and how kids are performing on those. So if we have a low standard that's been performed low like twice already, then we'll make sure to kind of maybe add one more of those questions on there to see if we're closing that gap at all, all right. and stuff like that. But for the most part, and I've had training to write test questions and stuff. We had Kilgo training and all of that. A few right, years ago. we've done all that. I've done all that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so and that helps. But for the most part, we're just we're taking a test that's already kind of created by the state ish, and then we're we're teaching up to that. But that the, there's the the problem that I've had with discussing this with newer teachers, like for instance, I, I was just doing this the other day. I was talking to one of my newer teachers who I've been mentoring. You know, every day she comes to my room and we talk through her lessons or talk about what's going good, what's going bad, and. 
she was telling me that she was, she actually thanked me for talking about teaching more than data because she was like, I don't know what to do with the data I'm looking at. So talking Mm -hmm. about the actual teaching side is really useful because now I can look at the data and go, oh, this is what I need to do next. And I feel like that's, that's also something that's kind of fundamentally missing is that we, we put data before good teaching, but it doesn't like, it doesn't matter what test you're doing. If you don't know what to do with a 50% uh, correction, like, or a 50%, like correct answer rate on an answer choice. Like if you don't know how to take that and apply it to your classroom, it doesn't do you any good. Right. So when you've helped people kind of go through this process though, of looking at numbers, what do you actually look at when you went like, and and let's stick with multiple choice for a minute. We're going to go over to kind of the workshop uh, area in just a little bit, but I wanted to kind of get this out of the way before uh, we jump to that side, because this is what people deal with, I think the most. So when you're looking at that data, what is it that you're really looking for when, after you give a test? Well, first of all, I want to make sure that the question that I've asked really meets that standard, the rigor, mm. uh, the, the, yeah, the, the rigor requirement of that standard. Because a lot of times we'll sit there and say analyze, but our question actually is identify. So you want to make sure that the rigor that is needed for that type of standard at your grade level. There was one time we were asking all these uh, questions that made me think of something. That's why I stopped my sentence. I'm sorry. But one of the things that I remember, we were going over the data and we were looking at questions. This was uh, years ago. But we, we discovered that my teachers were asking third grade level questions. So we were actually testing our seventh graders at a third grade level based on the standards, because this is a nice, cute little lesson that we always did. But when they changed the standards, we didn't change the lesson. So number one, we got to make sure that your questions that you ask match that rigor level of the question, that the rigor requirement of the question. Number two, I want to look and see at my answer choices, especially if it's multiple choice, were those answers misleading? Because if I have 70% of my students fail or only 30% get it right, then it's either me or did I teach it right or is there a problem with the question? So I just want to first rule all that out. Then I want to look and see, uh, you know, if I determine that it's a teacher situation, then I need to make note of it and figure out how I need to go back and reteach. For sure. And I think I approach it the same way too. It's it's the conversation of analyzing. Now, ideally, the test should be – you should have the test in hand before you ever teach whatever you're about to teach to that, right? Oh, and yeah. You always start that way first. You create your test before you ever even begin Yeah, whether you're writing it or just using one, right? And that, yeah. that, that's a process that, uh, that, that's something that's still kind of new, even to my team to where, uh, because mm-hmm. things get pushed, right? Like it's easy to like, forget about it and you kind of know what it's going to look like. So you push it off. And then before you know it, it's the week before you have to give the test, you got to throw it together. And then you wonder why kids are missing certain questions. And it's because, well, they didn't, you didn't know what was on it. So therefore you couldn't teach for kids to master that content on the test in general. So um, creating it beforehand is definitely good. And one of, one of the things that I love well, to do – oh, go ahead. Uh, well, no, that, that creating it beforehand is backward design by Jill McKay, yeah. just so that we There's another credit. book for y'all. There's Sorry. Book. <laughs> I just want to give yes. credit because it's not our, our – Yeah, yeah. No, n- nothing here is uh, – I should have actually jotted down some names to reference. Well, maybe I'll do that on another assessment episode because there are some really good resources for. Oh, there is for assessment. A lot, and mm-hmm. it's not dull either. Like it's something that you think is dull, but really, when you dive into quality assessment, it's really fun, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Like, and it's not it's not test taking culture. It's 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 assessing. It's knowing why you're assessing, right? And that's and that. So actually, we can pivot to that right now, which is like okay. when we. Uh, on my campus, like for my seventh grade team, we have a pretty good system in place right now to where we do 
a pre-test before the unit. So we pull um, a test that's similar to what we do. It's shorter because we don't want to spend a full you know time on it. Maybe six questions, eight questions, depending on what we're doing. So we give a pre-test at the beginning of a unit. We take that data. We put it up there. And we go, sweet. So these are our low standards. These are where our kids are already doing good on. And then we craft lessons around all of those standards. We still hit them all, but we really focus in on those low standards. Then we give another test three weeks or so later, and we do a comparison. Did we grow? Did we go down? What are the possibilities? You know, all these other things. And what you can see is as we've done this, is for us coming back, all of our units has taken about an extra two weeks. So we've done three tests pretty much per uh, genre. So we did three fiction tests. We did a pretest, we did a fiction test, and we did a fiction retest. And each one, you can see the numbers go up on every single standard. Now, for every kid, not necessarily, right? Some kids dip and stuff like that, and then you have to really dive into, you know, why was this question different or something like that. But for the most part, overall, you can see this upward trend. Now, sometimes that's not true. There's some where the trend went down, and that showed us that maybe our first question was too easy on that pretest. And then so that helped us kind of tighten it up over time. But having those conversations and asking, does this question directly assess whether we taught this standard? And like you said, using is it identify, is it analyze, is it explain? All of that has to come into play if you're using standardized uh, test, but if you're using standard-based assessments too, it doesn't mean if it's standardized or not. If you're trying to analyze a standard, um, the question needs to be reflective of that, and that's hard. Like that is extremely difficult to get good at. But and, and if you look at the state test, they don't even do it right all the time, which is where the frustration no, comes. Yeah. So yeah. So sometimes you blindly because you're in a hurry accept whatever, oh, the state created it. But then if you really go back and look at it, that's why afterwards, sometimes when you look at those, you go, oh, well, wait, that didn't even do what I wanted it to do. So you really do need to have those tests created before you teach. That's really the ideal way of doing it. But well, I have a there, question. Oh, sorry, sorry. No, yeah. I have a question for you because you talked about your pre-test, your three tests. Uh-huh. Are they the same test or are they different tests that ask the same thing? Because I think that some people believe that you need to have the same exact test and then you post-test with that same exact test. So can you can you tell us a little bit about that? Because that might clarify some things for some people on how you do it. Yeah. So we uh, – my principal and I have a – Like we pretty much agree almost to a T about how this type of testing should look. And it is not the same test. Um, It is the same standards as close as we can get them. So every once in a while, if we do a pretest and every kid gets a question, right? um, That could be the, that's never happened, but the question might be too easy um, or they just might kill it, right? They just might really understand that standard in this context. So what we'll do is based on that pretest, we will design the next test. So if they were really low on, you know, understanding dialogue in uh, a play, for instance, we might really double down on that. And so rather than two questions, maybe there's three or four questions there. Um, some of the questions like, you know, here in Texas, you know, inferencing is like the big thing. So mm-hmm. uh, inferencing is always going to be on there a lot and inferencing we make a conscious effort not to judge inferencing in drama with inferencing in nonfiction, for instance, because uh, it's not apples to apples. Even though it's the same standard, different genres yield different results. So we True. keep that in mind as we are going through that as well. But for most part, every test is entirely different, and we match it up. I We try to match it up as best we can. So if there's two setting questions on the pretest, there's going to be two setting questions on the post-test. Um, it doesn't always happen like that. Like I said, some things change it. Uh, but for the most part, we try to do that. That way we can't – that way we won't throw off ratios too because when we look at it in, we use our you know edgephoria and aware to look at our data. If we are looking at that, we can't say – because if you only have one question, for instance, that's going to throw off your percentages – Compared mm-hmm. to the so test be before, zero it. or one hundred, right? And that'll throw off your overall percentage mm-hmm. as well. And when yeah. the other test had maybe two or three questions on it, so we try to keep that in mind. That way, we know 
that it was at least as apples to apples as we could possibly get it. There's always small details that could change. The text might be a little harder. Uh, there might have been a word in uh, one of the answer choices or a word in a passage that threw understanding off. There's all of those uh the little like idiosyncrasies that can play into this, but for the most part, yes, it's pre-test. Second test looks exactly the same, uh, different text. And then if we're going to do a third one, it's yet another text with, um, it might be honed in even more. Cause if there's three standards that are really giving us trouble, we're going to hit those really hard to try to, uh, bring those up to the percentages that we're trying to hit. Is that answer your question? Yeah. And then, um, the other thing that comes up when I'm talking to teachers about this, I just thought I'm being like the the teacher. You're 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 helping me here. So anyway, my other question is on grades. So on this pretest, do y'all count it as a test? Do you uh, do you pre-teach anything at all? I mean, is it like cold when the kids get it? Like it's is a it hun- a Yes, mm-hmm. it's a hundred percent cold as much as we can. Um, so we and, and no no pre teaching at all. I mean, some standards overlap, right? So mm-hmm. like there might be a figurative language question on a drama test, the same as a fiction. So they might have had that type of uh, question before, but the genre is cold. So. We did the fiction test right at the beginning of the year because that's our first unit. We did nonfiction next cold. We did poetry cold and we did drama cold. And uh, that really gives us kind of that raw data. And no, we don't take it for uh, a grade in the grade book um, at all because the goal is just data gathering. Um and it's working – it's really working pretty well because a lot of campuses, especially coming after COVID, uh, you know, they wanted to make sure kids didn't have gaps or were behind. And so they did like a big mock test at the beginning of the year. Like our math department – our principal actually brought this to us. She asked if she wanted English and math to do a mock test at the beginning of the year using an old star test to get all the data that we wanted. And math decided to do it. And I think they had more justification because math is literally a building block. So they were so like for their sixth graders, for instance, that didn't take the fifth grade test. They gave them that fifth grade test to see where they were. Um, English isn't the same. English is a lot more uh, recursory than other subject like math. So um, we opted not to. I actually went to battle with this. I had several debates with my administration about this and they didn't trust me at first. They were, I was like, no, I don't want to do that because kids are out of practice. Um, they, they haven't been reading over summer. A lot of them, they haven't been in this mode. I was like, I don't want to base the rest of this semester off of data. I get from kids. that haven't been to school in six months. You know what I mean? Like I wanted, yeah. I wanted a fresh, Look And so I said, let me do this pretest thing. I was like, it's going to be a little bit more work. And some of the team members are going to complain about it. But I think everyone's going to accept it once it happened. And you know what happened? This last uh, PLC, uh, our principal chimed in. I didn't know she was going to do this. She chimed in and said, hey, you know, we're getting a lot of really useful data from these pretests. Turns out Chastain made a good move on this. So we're glad we listened <laughs> to him. And I was like, whoo, because Woo! it was I mean, it was just one of those moments where I was like, okay, I won the battle. Now let's really hope it works. And uh, now I don't want to look away, though. I think it's I think it's infinitely more valuable uh, the way we're doing it right now. Well, I, I like the way you're doing it. Yeah, I think it uh, – what would be a good jargon term? Pedagogically sound. Yeah. <laughs> I just had to throw something in there. <laughs> well, and it, it really – I mean, a lot of that stemmed from just like – because our kids are going to get better as the year goes on. So they they mm-hmm. might score higher on a pretest later in the year than they would at the beginning. And I think why – wait, I, I do – I don't have enough – like we talk about not having time to assess. I don't have time to assess stuff that they already know. You know what I mean? Like yeah. I, I, don't, I don't need to boost my ego – uh, to them to score high on the standards that they're already doing good on. I don't care. I, my ego comes from improving them. And this is also the other conversation I've had with our team, which is, you know, a lot of people are really comfortable, like 
for instance, I teach all honors right now. I could sit back. I could probably not really try to teach and grow them. And I would still have relatively high scores comparatively to my on-level counterparts easily because those kids Mm -hmm. just generally score higher anyway. Not all of them, but the majority of them. So I could totally rest on that. But I am 100% concerned with growth, not this ego that I'm trying to build with having good scores. My ego comes when I can take those kids from a 25% master's rate to a 55% master's rate. That's when I get Mm -hmm. like, boom, you do that. And that's, (laughs) but that's only the only Mm -hmm. way that happens, which by the way, that totally happened on drama. But the only way that happens is with my dedication to looking at the struggle standards and not being, uh, not being self-conscious about kids doing poorly. I, I would rather know that they do poorly sooner so I can fix it. Very good. Yeah, I agree with you. I really do. Usually, I, you know, in the past, when we had all those district benchmarks at the beginning of the year and all that kind of stuff, I mean, my kids always, you know, they might not have, because I didn't prepare them for the test, so to speak. I just taught. And then I used that to determine whether or not we needed to move on. That was that was years ago when that was about the only data points that we really had at the time. And uh, all this was kind of new. So, But when it was all said and done at the end, my kids did really well. That's because I used that data. And then uh, maybe not as strategic as what you're doing right now, but I, I like what you're doing right now. I think well, that's, and- that's very helpful. Another point of this is for teachers that might feel pressure from curriculum, like they have to stay on task or whatever, they have to make sure that they're moving on, I would suggest approaching admin uh, about extending a unit a little longer. You know, I know different districts are different districts. I've had people email me that, you know, Mm -hmm. they're scripted and stuff like that. And I I totally understand. So uh, take what I'm about to say with your own life in mind, but we extended, like I said earlier, we extended every unit by two weeks because our kids were just, they were struggling getting back into school. Right. I mean, they'd Mm -hmm. been a lot of them, like, you know, we can talk about online teaching all you want, but they weren't in school for six months. Like (laughs) it was different. They were they. I mean, they were learning a new program. They were doing all this. There was all kinds of the teachers were learning. Like there were so many things in the way the learning as we know it in the classroom was not happening when we went digital initially. So these kids mm-hmm. were gone and we saw that when they came back. Um, and so we extended everything and that extension really did help the numbers. I mean, they're, uh, astonishing how different that pretest was versus, um, an extended eight week, eight week unit. I mean, it was night and day and we, and it makes us feel better too, because it wasn't like we were just, okay, man, they did horrible on that test. Now time to go to the next unit. It's like, no, like if you're going to assess, and you know that your kids struggled on something, don't move on. Like, you don't, mm-hmm. like, seriously, like, this all boils down to if you're going to do this, and if we all are forced to do this type of assessment that we're talking about, don't try to use it as intelligently as you possibly can. And sometimes it takes for you as the teacher to go, hey, maybe we should stay on this for like another week and a half. Let's do some reteaching. Let's do some remediation before uh, we move on. Because if we move on, this problem is just going to get worse. Uh-huh. It's not going to get better. Yeah. No, that's true. That's true. Well, my, my next question, apparently I'm now, you asked me the original question, but I have all these others. <laughs> You're welcome. Um, so my next question is, does this at all take you out of your workshop model? That's a great question. And it's perfect timing too. Cause I was like, oh man, we should probably pivot to the workshop side. Um, <laughs> no, it doesn't because so I have, I have found myself more and more into uh, like a rhythm, right? Like it's a, I, there's a rhythm of my workshop that has set in, uh, this year. It, it set in last year too, but it's really true this year. And that is, so at the beginning of a unit, we do a pretest and then I do, I try to get them started in their writing as much as possible because I know if that writing workshop is rolling, everything else runs a lot smoother because that's, that's, you know, quote unquote unstructured, right? They're not following me. They're, they're rolling through their own writing. They're being driven by their own interest and stuff like that. So if I leave them out to dry at the beginning of a unit 
they uh, the workshop flounders. They struggle. It, there's more disruptions. There's more kids needing me 100% of the time. And it's just not conducive to the amount of conferencing that I need to do to have them grow in their writing. So I do a pretest and then I get them. I try to do a lesson or two that really inspires them in their writing. Something that's catchy, like a, a slam poem is usually a go-to for me. Some type of passage that's really passionate. If I'm if I know my kids really well, you know, if it's like November, December, January, I know what drives them, so I'll try to pick a passage that makes them mad or inspired or, or wants to dive deeper. And once I have that, then my workshop goes as follows. About a week of really exploring the waters, seeing what my kids know, comparing my lesson data to the pretest. So I take the pretest and go, okay, so we're struggling in theme. So I might work on theme for the first three days of that week. Once we're doing that, I'm like, oh, they're killing it. Like, or maybe they're not. So I'll decide where to go from there. The next week, we either continue working on that struggle or we move on to the next set of standards that we need to hit. Um, And then around by the third week, on the reading side, the reading becomes more associated with some questions. So I'm always asking questions, but a lot of it in the first week or so of a unit, it's more discussion. It's more kids responding. It's more, you know, if we read a piece, it's, it's noticing what we liked about it, why we liked it. What did this make us think about all of those kind of, uh, those, those questions that really drive independent thinking in their own reading. And then as we near the test, I start offering, uh, questions that look more test-like, right? And mm-hmm. so I just take question stems that are similar to the test and we start moving that way. So um, basically the way I describe this to people who ask is my workshop starts r- as wide as possible because I want to catch as many students as possible. And then as we near the test and near the end of a unit, it narrows down to where kids in their writing are starting to publish and starting to move into those phases. And on the reading side, we're starting to go less broad and more narrowed down to attack the standards that we might be scoring less in, the kids, the standards that kids are struggling in. And that way, the last few days of this unit is me tightening up anything that might be missed by students based on test, based on the way it's being asked, because a kid might be able to tell you all day what a theme is in a piece, but when they're given a choice of four themes, they can't answer it because answer selection is different than answer creation, right? That's true. Yeah. And, and that is something that I overlooked forever. That I was like, why? Because I would talk to kids. This is, happens a lot, right? They'll be like, well, I talk to my kids and they really understand it, but they just failed the test. It's because they're different skills. So when we near the test, my focus turns less from, okay, they have content. Now I have to teach them the skill set to what does this look like in a multiple, multiple choice setting. And that way I kill two birds with one stone. The workshop continues. It narrows down. We take the test and then it widens up again. And that's, it's kind of like a big bang over and over again. It just goes like, or an accordion, I guess, whatever, whatever uh, analogy you want, but that, that tends to be how mine goes. Well, I have also used that left side in the craft book uh, to kind of give them a question. Like we kind of how you do your text Yep. where you, they take the, you, you, you know, you make your text smaller and then you put it in there and then they work off of it. But sometimes I want them to see what the kind of question they're going to be asked. So like if I'm doing a revision strategy in, in my writing, then I might say, well, on this, on our high stakes test, our star test, this is what that will look like. So that they're very clear about what I'm teaching them skill wise and how that translates into a test. So sometimes I'll do that as well. Yeah. And, and that seems to be helpful. Sure. And that that's what I'll find myself doing as well is it just depends on the unit. It depends on how comfortable mm-hmm. we are with it. Like for drama, for instance, we taught drama in about a week and a half. Um, because it's, it's not tested very much, uh, and it's very close to fiction, right? It's actually easier in fiction than in my opinion, because it's almost all dialogue and dialogue is the easiest part to read in any fiction piece. Um, that's why kids love graphic novels because it's all, it's all dialogue. dialogue. So kids, I think what, if you've taught fiction first and you go to drama, so we knew that and we banked on that. And we used a lot of, so when we taught it, I, we recalled a lot of 
the past lessons in fiction. Um, we used part of their craft books to uh, restudy just character setting, uh, conflict, all of that stuff to make sure that they were just acclimating themselves. And once they had that connection, it was done. I mean, we taught it for a week. We read a play out loud and then, uh, we tightened up some, okay, what does this look like in a test like scenario? Boom, did it. Kids killed it. Now we're moving on and we get to go on to argument. So it was, it, it was it was really good, but it's like some units aren't that. Like I said, we spent eight weeks on fiction at the beginning of the year, and now we're paying, we're 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 getting all of that time back by only spending a week and a half in drama. So I think it just it's all about the the flexibility and really looking at your data and what it's telling you. I think like that's where we are winning this year right now is is being honest about what we're seeing and teaching explicitly to that within the workshop format. Without workshop, I don't see how we could get as much done. I think that's why it's being so successful without a doubt. Well, I have to say, I agree with you. I think workshop does help you with your time. And then like, as I was telling you at the beginning, one of the things that I do is when the students are working, that's when I call those students up and I, and I do one-on-one or, you know, or, you know, like a small group setting uh, with about three or four kids that have issues with that one data point, I'll pull them up and talk to them about it. Um, you know, I, I'm trying not to spend more than 15 minutes because, you know, we have our COVID standards, but I am pulling them up. I'm watching my time with them and I'm making sure that I'm very succinct with what I tell them and ask them. And so I make sure that before they come up to me, I have all of the all of that information that I have. And then I share with them. I say, look at this. What do you see? And now, do you have any questions about what you're seeing? Uh, sometimes I'll have it color coded, you know, and they'll say, well, what does that yellow mean? Well, that means, you know well, we need it. Here's where you were. Here's where you are. And one of the things I do like about computers now with all the tests that we have, because we have that Eduphoria, you can take and look at every test they've ever taken uh, in any of the subjects and you can see if there's a pattern or if it's just your test. So sometimes I'll go and look through what other people are seeing and then kind of that helps me kind of know how to approach a student as well. So I kind of like, I mean, there. I've just learned to embrace it. But at first, I, I promise you, I didn't really appreciate it. Well, and I think, you know, I know we spent probably a little bit longer talking about uh, a multiple choice style testing for, you know, 46 minutes. But I think it's important that this part gets that people realize that this isn't the evil necessarily that people want to point it at. Yeah. I mean, is there better ways to assess? Yes. And we're about to talk about that. But there's like, this is the, re- if this is your reality, and you're at a campus that does this, use it to your advantage. Like, I think that's the only rational approach to any of this stuff. Like, we all know, like, teaching is filled with all kinds of fluff and garbage that have just filtered in over time, and it'll go and come back and go and come back. So use it to your advantage and uh, and inform your teaching as best you can. I think you'll be good. But in terms of craft and draft, the, there's a piece to this that I think is really valuable for educators, which is so let's say they've had their craft book and they're numbering their mini lessons and they're keeping a table mm-hmm. of contents of their mini lessons and they're using the left side for kids reflections. And then in their draft book, they're letting kids write. They have territories where they're letting kids draft and all this other stuff. The beautiful part about this is I've. I learned this from Donald Graves, but I really learned it in my own classroom just as experiment, which is if kids can do something in their writing, then they probably understand it in their reading. So, for instance, if they can write in a way that shows um, character – they can infer a character's feelings without telling you they're mad, for instance. They can write a piece of description that shows you that. They can answer a question about a character's feelings uh, if they're reading, right? right. There's it, – it, it, it's it's a recursive process. If they, if they can write it, they can read it. It's the same thing in like nonfiction. We ask kids to write these really weird nonfiction essays, but we hardly ever let them read stuff like that or mm-hmm. bring stuff like that in there. And then we wonder why they can't write it. But if they can, if they can write a structured nonfiction piece, they can read and comprehend one and answer questions about it. So the way this connects to craft and draft is 
your mini lessons are numbered and they have your standards in there. So when kids go to publish and publishing for me is when kids take a piece, they've worked through it, we've conferenced through it and they go, yes, this is as good as it's going to get. They type it up in Google Docs. We used to print it out and put it in a writing portfolio because of COVID. It's, they have a digital writing portfolio mm-hmm, where they keep everything. And then students go over the piece with me and we talk about what they did. And one of the reflective questions that I offer kids is what mini lessons of this six weeks are prevalent in your writing? And this is the magic of craft and draft right. and how it connects because – what kids end up doing, it's really awkward at first because they're like, I don't know. I just wrote and stuff like that because they're not realizing that they're using – kids are not 100% aware that they're using the things that you're showing them. The same way they're not aware that the mannerisms they get from watching TikTok and stuff like that, right? Like kids are just kids. Mm-hmm. They're they're sponges. They mimic what they see, which is – I mean this is why it's you have to create a solid environment for children. But I digress. In any case, you – so when you talk like this to, to your students – what they end up doing is they start recognizing that they are using their learning in their writing. So let's say you talked about theme in a subject or in a six weeks, you talked about theme setting and compound sentences. Okay. Let's say those are the only three standards you hit in student writing. By the end of that, their published writing. I sh- I'm looking for that. I want them to show mm-hmm. evidence of that. And what they do is on their published pieces, they actually list the page numbers from their draft book under their title, in that way, let's say if a kid writes a, a piece that's just not very good, right? It's like, oh, this is this is kind of rough, right? We don't say that to the kid, but we're looking at it and we're like, eee, okay? We go, oh, can you show me your draft book? They opened and it says they 62 through 64 are the pages they worked in. You look in there and the kid revised, they edited. You look at your conference notes and you're like, yep, we conferenced tons through this. This was their best piece. They referenced their craft book and oh my God, you go to their craft book now. You go to that lesson where they talked where they talked about that. And then oh, they did their reflections too. They did everything you were supposed to. So this time you can trace back, you can trace their published piece all the way back. And now you can assess what happened, what went wrong in their piece. And what you might find is that that piece they published was amazingly, it showed so much growth from the beginning of where they started. So now you're not looking at this piece and going, oh, this is kind of rough. You're looking at it going, holy crap, look at all the growth you just had. And right. all because of how all of this connects. Now it also works the other way. If you have a kid yeah. that gives you, if you have a kid that gives you a bad piece and you're like, oh, so what, what did you do here? And they go, oh, you know, I use this. And you go back and you, they said they use page 55 in their draft. If you look at page 55, they just jotted it down real quick. You look at your conference notes, you're like, oh, we only talked like one, one and a half times about this. He didn't really mm-hmm. revise. He didn't edit. And then you go look at their craft book, and they kind of half wrote the mini lesson down, and they definitely did the reflection. And now you have reasons why this isn't connecting. So this conversation of why are my kids not getting these concepts is erased within craft and draft because you can trace it from the mini lesson to practice in reading, to practice in writing, to publishing. And with that line as seamless as possible, um, you, you can now be a detective for each kid and really dive into, okay, so maybe they understood on the reading side, but they're struggling with application or maybe they were, they didn't go deep enough on their independent reading. So you might be talking about theme, but they're really giving you kind of hackneyed phrases and really not going Mm -hmm. deep enough. And so now they're not going to write a theme. They're not going to write something with a deep phrase because they didn't understand uh, those concepts. And this, this I think is the magic of craft and draft because it all the way from the top of the episode, what did we say? It was the whole, I don't know. What do we do right. with this information? And now you have a multiple choice test and you have writing application. This is, a, this is the, um, th- you wouldn't be able to ask for any more information <laughs> because it's, it's everything you need. It's workshop data and multiple choice. And then you get to decide and find out where your kids are. And it's also a great, in my opinion, I think it's a great learning process for teachers that don't really, if you're just doing this process and you don't know how to gather this data, if you follow craft and draft beat by beat, you have all the data you have. The next part is just learning how to use it. Right. So let's say we're doing argument, right? 
And so in your craft book, you've, you've downloaded a small article that's an argument article, right? That are argumentative text. You give that to the students. You teach them all about how to make a claim, how to do your reasons. This is what the author did. Da, 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 da. They take their notes. Okay. But you, at the, at the top, you have their standard. Is that right? And then yep. their notes on their mini lesson, and then mm-hmm. and then you work that text. All right, so now you've done maybe one or two of those. One time you talked about claim. The next one you talk about reasons, and then you look and compare the two of them, what have you. That's what your craft book looks like, okay? And all that's on the right side. On the left side, they're making notes. You're making conference notes. You're making sure they understand it. All right, so now we go to the draft book, and now they're going to think of, let's say, a topic that they want to argue for or against, and now on, on that right side, they do their draft. They turn the page because, you know, they're going to write a lot. So they're going to turn the page and they're going to write on the right again, correct? Yep. yep. And then from there, they start working that. They start, you, you might teach them. They might go back to their claim. You have them highlight their claim in their piece. And then they need to improve it. So on the left side, they're busy improving their claim that they made in that paper that they wrote. Is that kind of how you're doing that? And then from there, they can go back and track it when you when they turn in their final piece. And you can kind of see where they either didn't take their notes or they were absent or mm-hmm. they didn't highlight or they didn't. So you can go back and look, which lets you know if it's teacher needs to improve or the student didn't follow you for whatever reason. Yes. And in COVID days... Whatever reason can happen, yeah. let me tell you. <laughs> I mean, they might Holy, be quarantined or anything like that. I mean, Holy there's all Toledo. kinds of things going on. Yeah. But th- this is why the craft and draft thing really works because the part of the, the success of this, I think, is if you have to train kids to write down everything, right? You're Because right. you're treating – what you're training them to do – is putting all, all as much thinking as they can into writing in their journal, and that way it becomes a written record of what's happened. So let's say you let's talk about COVID. Let's say you have a kid that gets they're exposed. They don't have COVID, but they have to stay home for ten or fifteen days or whatever it is. They don't do anything because no kid's going to work online if they're in person, right? So they go home right. <laughs> and they they go home and you know. And I, by the way, that that sounded like an insult, man. If I was a kid and I got sent home quarantine, I'd be like deuces. I'll see you in two weeks. Shoot. Like I'm not doing. I'd be playing. I'd be playing. Well, I know what you'd be doing. You'd be playing that night. What was that? What's that game y'all like? Fortnite. Fortnite. That's it. You'd be yeah. playing Fortnite. I have kids yeah. be playing Call of Duty. That's what I'm saying. Like uh, I, I know don't... what my son would be playing. He'd be playing X Wing. You know, because he likes those tabletop games. I know exactly what be happening. I, I wouldn't do. Uh, so I don't. I don't hold any grudges to them. I'm just like sweet. They're gone. You know, if I'm lucky, they'll come to my zooms. But like other than that, they're gone. So when they come back, though, it's a. I have my conference notes, but I also have a written record of where we left off. So I can be like, right. oh, sweet. So we we were just now kind of building your claim, and I see here that oh yeah, we were kind of revising this. So have you thought about that? No, I haven't. Sweet. So that's that's where we're going to start today. So <laughs> it gives you a platform to continuously work. And the beautiful part of this is that if you are working within a workshop format, you're going to have kids that soar and they're going to go one step in the next and they're going to fly through this very well and they're going to use their left side for revisions. And the, the beautiful part about this is once kids get comfortable with that left side and what it's supposed to be used for, man, the amount of great writing on left side of the page, like I, really I feel amazing. like – I feel like there's a book in there somewhere about what's on the left side. Like that's the title. Okay. Maybe that's book I two think that or something. Maybe our next clip. <laughs> we have got to write to finish the first. I know one. we got to we got to get through it. But it's <laughs> it's that left side is so good. And the once they start using it because they're writing because it's the Penny Kittle model. It's the whole right beside mm-hmm. a text. Right. It's yep. it's it's sitting with your own writing. So they might brainstorm something on the right side. And the left side is you mining it for good ideas, making it better, polishing it. And as kids go through that, and as you go through it with them and just because you're remember, you're conferencing all the time. You're not sitting at your desk. You're not doing any of this. You're constantly moving around the room as much as you can with your COVID restrictions. But if it's not COVID era, we're all we're all done. Well, I'm we're all moving, moving around. Yeah, time. you're 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 moving around, you're doing all of that. It's it's you being able to track where you are with those kids. So each kid, there might be kids that are really far in this process. There might be kids that are really behind, but because you're doing this workshop model, it all 
coalesces. You're not forcing them to be all, okay, today, guys, we're all writing claims. I need you to write claims for the next 30 minutes, and we're just going to do that. Now, tomorrow, we're going to write the intro paragraph, and then the next, we're going to write a supporting paragraph. It's none of that because you might have a kid that is able to jot down a rough draft of an essay in a day and a half, and you might have a kid that does it in two weeks. But the right. the where workshop helps is it it's an automatic scaffold for every student you have in your class because real world teaching is you have the 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 gamut the the range of kids in your class yes and 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 you can like as i was telling you i pull those kids up as i need to but that's that's what's wonderful about doing it in a workshop model. There's nobody being pointed out because I sit with all of the students. It doesn't matter. I'll sit with all of them. I'll sit to extend and I'll sit to uh, help them improve and to fill in a gap. It doesn't matter because they're all used to the system. And so that was we go such back a good and we quote. look. That was, that was such a, that's like, if people didn't realize how genius that was, like that is why <laughs> you just defined why workshop is powerful because it's because you're sitting with kids and you're conferring every single day, you know, Mm -hmm. it's no longer, Oh, the teacher's working with the quote unquote dumb kids, right? The kids that are struggling. It's it's the teacher works with all of us. They don't know. I mean, most of them aren't even aware of what's happening outside of their own like world. So like, they don't know that if I'm going over here, I might be reteaching something. But if I'm going over here, I'm extending something. They have no idea what the difference is. They have no idea what you're doing. They just know that this is what you do. And I mean, I have students, that now it's getting, I mean, they've now gotten used to me, right? And now they'll say, can can I have a conference? I need a conference. Can you come up? I need a conference. I mean, they now are using those terms. Can can I conference? Can I sit in that conference chair? And I mean, we're now at that point where, I mean, and it, these are kids that other people are having trouble with, but they're asking me for a conference. And not that I'm not saying I never have trouble with some students. I mean, that happens. I'm not I'm not trying to paint that rosy picture. But there are some students that other people have trouble with. And I think because I've hit them on a level where they're at with ideas that they want to write about, it makes all the difference. And then they're like, hey, I, I want to, you know, we give them places to publish or things to do with their writing. And they're like, I, I want I want this to be good. Can you help me with and they'll and I make them think of specific questions and things that they they want to work on. But what's really neat, and I think I'll probably grow from this conversation that you and I had. But what would really be neat is if they could take their conference questions that they have for me, and they go back and look at all their data. They go back and look at the mini lessons. They go back and look at what they don't understand. So if they can go back and do all of that, and then formulate their own questions to ask me based on. Uh, all of their craft and draft notebooks. Now I think we've got them actually independent. That would be independent learning, which is, boy, that's hard to get sometimes. Well, and that's by far the most challenging piece of this, in all honesty, is getting kids to want to reflect on their own stuff because Mm -hmm. most kids are self-conscious. They've struggled with writing before or reading before. They, it's hard to get them to do this. And this is, you know, it's funny though. This is the bread and butter. This is what like every district that I know of that's trying to be data driven. They want kids to interact with their stuff and they give PDSAs and stuff like PDSA has nothing on the amount of detail that craft and draft is giving teachers. Oh, that's a good point. Because it's. And students, right? If kids are be if if a student can sit with you, and look at their piece of writing, and say, "Oh, I used this from this mini lesson. Here's how I did it, and here's how well I think I did it." And they can be honest in that conversation because you've built that trust and you've built that rapport. There's that is such a rare. You were in the top one percent of education, in my opinion, and I think that that's my ultimate goal because it doesn't happen all the time, and it's definitely the hardest part. But when it does happen, it's magical. Like I sat with Mm -hmm. a student the other day who took a line from a mini lesson. Uh, She took a line from the piece, which we talk about a lot, barring a line, starting with that. But she put it in the middle and she took it in this different direction. I And I saw it and I go, oh, hey, did you take that from that? And she goes, yeah, I did. And then we had the conversation in a conference 
And so we had those conversations earlier. It wasn't at the end where she was publishing. It was during that. So we could go even deeper into that mini lesson because what I was trying to teach my kids was this idea of an extended metaphor and taking a metaphor and not just using it as a line, but using it through several lines or several paragraphs mm-hmm. or something like that. And I was like, this is a useful skill. And then we talked about mixing metaphors, why you can't do both. Like you can't take a metaphor and then all of a sudden change it to a different one. I was like, it's called flowery language. You don't want that. And I thought it was going to be slightly over their heads, but they ran with it and they were, they were going, Hey, Chastain, I have this metaphor and I'm trying to take it this way, but I, I don't know. Can you, can you tell me how well I'm extending this? And I was like, Holy crap. Like this is, it was just one of those moments where I was like, this is right. astonishing that seventh graders are talking about extended metaphors. <laughs> I mean, it was just so good, but I couldn't have done that without the entire process we've laid out in this episode without a doubt. Right. Right. Well, I think I think you're right. I think it is magical when all of a sudden they just and, and you can see it. You can see it right when it clicks. Yeah. And they realize this is why we're doing it. And then as I told you earlier, my kids when they really are tuned into that notebook or that the craft and draft book, they don't want to give it back to you. I mean, they you know, can I have that for any? No, Miss yeah, I'm gonna keep it. this. Nope. Yeah, they, they it's a lot of valuable information and they recognize it. They really do. So I think I think um, I think it's a great way to assess our students. Well, and it moves and he, beyond multiple choice. Exactly. Well, and it's the it's the marriage of the two, and I think that's what as we close out this episode, I think mm-hmm. that's what I, I personally I want people to take away that from the most is that you know we because we do the job. And because we're actually teachers in public schools that deal with the same stuff and like I'm under uh, quote unquote a tip at my campus to where like if we don't do good on this state test this year, like TEA of Texas is coming in. You know what I mean? Like I'm under I'm under the max pressure you can be at a public school right now as a department chair and as just a teacher and stuff like that. And this is the stuff that we're using to revolutionize our campus. And it's not because we're delusional and we're obsessed with test taking and stuff like that. It's because we're using the systems that we're forced to use and we're using them for as good as we can use them. But we're also working within a workshop practice that extends kids learning beyond the test into their independent learning and stuff like that. And I think this, the craft and draft and why you and I are passionate about it besides the fact that we made it is the fact that we use it and it's effective in a real environment. This isn't some idealized journal system that someone made up that hasn't. Yeah. That's not a program. Definitely not a program. And (laughs) something that someone made, you know, where they haven't touched a classroom in 15 years. It's, we did this out of desperation for all the stuff that we had to do in a lot of ways. So I think next episode, we need to hit on uh, how we honor all of this, how we honor data, how we honor student writing, um, how we move on into that. So we, we've worked through the whole process. We did craft and draft. We did draft book. We did publishing and all of that. And then there's a whole in assessing. And then there's a whole section where it comes to how do you honor this? How do you, how do you praise students for the right things? And how do you, how do you keep right. that momentum going? I think that's a great uh, episode after okay, this. Well, that's what we'll do next. I'll be thinking on it. But for everyone else, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, this is the craft and draft podcast. Remember, Like we said a hundred times on this episode, at least, we are real teachers doing the real job. So if you support this, it really does mean the world. If you go over there, rate and review the podcast on your podcast app of choice, Apple Podcasts, wherever you are listening to this. It really does help. We are doing this. uh, You know, we we spend an hour or more of our day uh, every single week talking about our practices and going through this. So uh, if you appreciate that, please leave a review. That is the best thing you could do and share the podcast and subscribe so you get the podcast every single Friday. We haven't missed one yet and we're not going to miss one anytime soon. I guarantee it, regardless of what's happening. So stick around. There's going to be more of this. We're going to be diving into a whole lot more about Reading Writing Workshop. I hope your workshop's going great, regardless if you're online, in person, or something in between, like synchronous, like we are. But until then, ladies and gentlemen, know that we are here for you.